Hello, welcome to Women in the Word. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And also welcome to you at the West Campus. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word. Today we get to talk about God being our provider. And I was realizing how easy it is for us to just go through our days without ever even being conscious of the fact that God is providing for us. We assume that it's our work, it's our money, it's our skills, our planning, and that's what makes our lives rich and full when all along it comes from the generous hands of our God. And the problem with forgetting that all we have comes from God's gracious hands is that we leave God out of the picture. When we leave God out of the picture, lots of scary things start to happen. First of all, we get the glory when things are going well, not God. We develop an entitlement way of thinking, um, and we lose a grateful heart. Our sense of security begins to depend on our provisions and not finding security in our provider. And finally, when we're satisfied in the gifts alone that God gives us, we aren't really interested in getting to know the giver. Those are awful problems that happen when we forget God's the one that's providing. Here's the truth. James 1.17 on your verse sheet. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When I was working on this lesson, Psalm 23 kept coming to my mind because it's a really, it's a psalm about God's provision in our lives. And in that psalm, we see David realizing that in both the good times and in the bad times, God is there. God is his provider. And I think Peter and the early church realized that and witnessed this reality in the church and its growth. When I was a little girl, we used to recite the 23rd Psalm, and I always hesitated and did not want to say the first line because I didn't really understand it, which is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I didn't want to say it because I thought to myself, why don't I want my shepherd? I, I do want him. And I don't know how old I was before the light bulb went off that, oh, he's my shepherd, so I shall not be in want. I shall not need anything. He is my provider. Does it mean we're not going to suffer loss or face hard times? No, we look at Jesus' life, we look at the disciples' lives, we look at the early church, uh, we look at the persecuted church today, and we look in the mirror, and we realize what it does mean is that God knows our needs, and he cares about them, and he will take care of us. He's our provider. He is faithful in our hungers we're going to look at today, in our struggles that make us sometimes feel like we're in captivity. And also, all along our life journey, God is our provider. And we know this to be true. Jesus said it was true on your verse sheet, Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, 
and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you need will be given to you. David told us this is true on your outline under um, in our hunger. I'm going to read what he said. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I think in these stories in the book of Acts, we see that happening. We see God's provision for the church. He's on the move. Last week, we saw how he met the spiritual needs of the Gentiles. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, he provided them with salvation through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And he provided them a place to grow and serve his church. They didn't need to become Jewish to enter the church, to embrace their faith. They entered the church as Gentiles, this great, growing, interracial, international church of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus said it would be, John 10, 16 I have other sheep, Jesus said, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Peter and the Jews in Cornelius' home, they saw God's provision for the Gentiles, and they rejoiced. Peter shared it with the skeptical Jews in Jerusalem. They rejoiced. Well, most of them rejoiced, and we'll look later about more on that. But now for the very first time when we're in the book of Acts in these chapters, the Jews begin to target Gentiles to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And historians think this was one of the greatest events in history. Christianity finally launching on its worldwide mission. And they would find the world to be hungry, ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Some Jews probably hadn't heard the story of Peter and Cornelius. And so they were out, still continuing to preach to the Jews alone. And, you know, that makes sense because Jesus, they realize now, was the Messiah they'd all been waiting for. So they're sharing that good news with the Jews. But there were other Jews from Cyprus, which was an island near Antioch, and from Cyrene, which was a city in northern Africa. They were preaching the good news of Christ also to the Hellenists. These were Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles. And these, Gentile, these Jewish evangelists who shared with both Jew and Gentile alike, they were nameless pioneers for Christ. We don't even know their names, but they helped change the world for Jesus. And next to these amazing people 
was another amazing fact that emerges in these verses. The city of Antioch would take center stage in Christianity. It would become to be called the cradle of Christianity. It was the third greatest city in the Roman world. It was situated on the river Orontes, which was 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was big, a population of 500,000. It was made up of Jews, Greeks, Orientals, Romans. It was cosmopolitan. It was populous. It was popular. It was busy. It was important for trade. And Antioch was known because it was immoral. It was a city that really sought pleasure. It was known for chariot races, gambling, it was known for temple prostitution. It was sort of an ancient sin city. And this is where God decided to plant a church that would make these great strides in the world for Christianity. And the Bible tells us the hand of the Lord was with them. And the great number who believed turned to the Lord. Antioch became the capital of Gentile Christianity and the base from which missionaries would be sent into all the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God would provide what that church in Antioch needed. Look at chapter 11, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. God fed the church. He was their provider through the teaching and the encouragement of Barnabas and Saul. And don't you know, a people that were so corrupt, were so hungry for truth and to feel satisfied and to feel contentment and to feel free from the things that enslave them. So I know they embraced these teachings of Barnabas and Saul. Can you imagine if Barnabas and Saul uh, shared the gospel with new believers who had lived in this pagan world, lived this pagan lifestyle, had nothing, no knowledge about the Jewish faith and the Jewish God, and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they believe it, they turn to the Lord, and then Barnabas and Saul say, See ya. Have fun with your new faith. Be strong. Be steadfast in the Lord. Be obedient. We hope the best for you. And they walk out of their lives. What would have happened to that church? What would they do without teaching of God's word that they never had heard before? What about learning how to worship? What about learning what it means to be a church? How would they know how to pray? This was God's provision for them, Barnabas and Saul. I've been to a church in El Salvador that our church has some uh, connections with. And it is amazing to see what they are doing in El Salvador. They have many church plants. 
And um, what I loved when I got to go, oh, a year and a half ago for some women's ministry things, when someone comes into their church and they share the gospel with them and they then believe, they immediately sign them up for a discipleship program that I, if I remember right, it, it takes an entire year to go through it. They provide those things for those people so they will stay steadfast in the Lord, will have a solid foundation of the truth. And God has blessed that. Their church is healthy and growing, and I love that. So God had a plan like that for these converts in Antioch. And the mother church in Jerusalem, of course, would play an important part in that. I don't know how quickly they heard about what was happening in Antioch, but they did. They didn't have social media, so somehow the word got out. God spread the word. They were 300 miles south of Antioch. And I can't imagine the apostles in Jerusalem scratching their heads when someone said, Hey, Antioch is on fire for Jesus. And I'm sure they all looked at each other and said, Antioch, this was another sign of the amazing power of God. So just as the church had sent Peter and John to Samaria to check on those new believers, he sends Barnabas, they send Barnabas to check out God's work in Antioch. And they were wise to send Barnabas because you remember what his name was? He was called son of encouragement. God would use him to encourage the believers in this new church. Just as Barnabas influenced the church to accept Saul when he had come to Christ, Barnabas influences the Jerusalem church to accept these Gentiles in Antioch into the fold. He was the son of encouragement, good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. He was also from Cyprus, so he could um, connect in that way with a lot of these new converts in Antioch. What did Barnabas see when he came to Sin City? He saw God's grace, and he rejoiced in it. Remember when Jonah knew that some of the Gentiles in Nineveh were, were going to hear the truth of God, and instead of rejoicing about it, instead of rejoicing when they repented, Jonah was upset about it. He was annoyed. But that's so different than Barnabas. He was thrilled. He exhorted them, remain faithful to the Lord. He was so excited, he went looking for Saul in Tarsus. Tarsus was 100 miles away, and the word look in these verses actually means a very diligent search. I think God led Barnabas to seek out Saul so he knew he would be a great person to strengthen the Gentiles' faith, probably knowing Paul was called to reach out to the Gentiles. The last we had heard of Saul was seven to nine years earlier when he was escaping for his life in Caesarea. And a lot of theologians think these seven to nine years in Tarsus and around there was a really um, time of great persecution for Paul and probably disinheritance from his Jewish friends and his Jewish family. Once Barnabas finds him together, Barnabas and Saul became God's provision to these believers in Antioch for an entire year 
teaching them, loving them, worshiping with them, leading them into that solid walk with God. So in Sin City, for the first time, the Antioch disciples, which now had been called up to this point, saints and believers, brothers and sisters, disciples, for the first time, they are called Christians, meaning Christ's one or belonging to the party of Christ. And some think that it was the pagans themselves that named them. Antioch was sort of known for being witty and making up nicknames for everybody and everything. And so they probably saw this group of the church in the sin city of Antioch and didn't know how to describe them. They couldn't just call them a Jewish group anymore. And so they began to say, those are the Christ ones. Christ ones, Christians. I think it's great that name is still used thousands of years later. We are still Christ ones. We have the privilege of belonging to Jesus Christ. So it's a great name. So God would not only provide in their spiritual hunger, he was also going to provide for the church in its physical hunger. Look at Acts 11, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. You know, prophets were active after Pentecost, and they also came at this point to minister in Antioch. They were known as wandering men of God, of the early church. And they were two things. They were foretellers, F-O-R-E, announcing future events that the church needed to know. They were also forth-tellers, meaning that they would proclaim the will of God. And Abigus prophesied of a famine coming in the future. In history, there was a famine during the reign of Claudius, which would have been 40 to 55 AD. And then I just thought, we see how much this group of Antioch believers have grown because their first thought wasn't for themselves. Their first thought was for the believers living in Judea, even though there were still Jews in Jerusalem who were having trouble accepting this idea of, the Antioch, of Antioch Gentiles and all Gentiles coming into the church. And yet they didn't care. They realized in Jerusalem the famine would hit the hardest because they had a lot of imported food for such a large population and also because... Um, the new believers were beginning to be very despised by the Jews in Jerusalem. And so they wouldn't get help from them if a famine really did come. I thought it was great that the church that was new and young in Antioch immediately felt connected to the Jerusalem church and the churches in Judea. They were one, united in Christ. And I thought, you know, we see in Antioch one of the first illustrations of a multi-site. And I think that's sort of true. Christ's church was one church, 
but many locations. The elder board would be so proud of me to say that. They weren't just members of the Church of Antioch. They saw themselves, along with the churches in Judea, members of the Church of Christ together. One church, many locations. God used the generous hearts of the Antioch believers to meet the needs of the hungry in God's church. And 2,000 years later, God still uses his church to provide for the needy in this world, for the needy in the church, whether they're spiritually or physically hungry. Think God continues to feed believers today in the same way through his people, through his word, through his presence. If you sit down at in a pew on a Sunday and you look at the people around you, they're God's provision to you. If you're in a small group, they're God's provision to you. Women in the Word, the women sitting around the table next to you, God's provision for you. Look in your hands today. God's provision for you is Word. And look in your heart. God dwells there. That's his provision for you. Jesus even said that he is the one who will fill our hungry hearts and never abandon us. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I think our hungers change as seasons in our lives. Sometimes we're hungry for relationships, friends. Sometimes we're hungry for security. We're hungry for a change. We're hungry for freedom. We're hungry for health. If we have Jesus, we really do have everything. But we have to cry out to him. And we will find he meets our needs in our hungers. And he satisfies us. He is our all in all. He cares about our needs. But what about when we feel like we're imprisoned by some kind of trial or um, struggle or darkness that's in our life at the time? You know, David spoke about that in his 23rd Psalm, that God is our provider even in those hard times. I'm going to read that under in our captivity on our outline. David say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let's head back to Jerusalem and see what is the captivity and the struggles going on for the church. How is the persecution growing? Look at chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, 
but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This section really does confirm Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And this persecution by Herod was the third attack on Christians, first by the Jewish Sadducees, then by the Jewish Pharisees, and now by Herod with the Jews' approval. This Herod is Herod Agrippa I, and he's the grandson of Herod the Great that was on the scene when Christ was born. He was a ruler popular with the Jews because he was partly Jewish. He was also known to do all he could to win favor with the Jews and keep them happy because he was always on shaky ground with the Romans. So it was very politically wise for him at this time in history to treat Christ followers with violence. And that's what he did. So he had James violently killed by the sword. And for him to be killed by a sword would mean that they would have charged him with leading people into the worship of false gods. James is the only apostle whose martyrdom we will read about in the New Testament. He was one of Jesus' inner circles. We read all those stories in the Gospels of Peter, James, and John being with Christ. James was with Jesus at very crucial times, including the time that Christ was transfigured before them in all his glory, brilliant, white. And I was thinking, you know, Now James was there seeing Christ's glory in heaven as he saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. God would use James' martyrdom to set the stage for the first missionary journey. One theologian has said, Christians are immortal until their work on earth is done. James' work on earth was done. Now he was reaping his reward with his Savior. So I think uh, at this point, Herod rubbed his hands together, looked around, thought, what else can I do to keep the Jews happy? Who else can I grab? And Peter would be the perfect guy to grab because he'd sort of been hanging out with some Gentiles and also um, he was known to be a leader in the church. Herod couldn't kill Peter right then because it was Passover season the days of unleavened bread, and these are seven days after Passover. It was a Jewish custom that uh, executions were forbid during that time. But thousands of Jews would have been thronging the city streets of Jerusalem at that time because of Passover, and this was celebrating the Jews' deliverance from Egypt. So it was a brilliant move for Herod to arrest Peter when all these zealous Jews were there and would still be there at the end of the unleavened bread when Herod could choose to also execute Peter. Now Herod remembered Peter's stories before of how he seemed to miraculously, which it was, escape prison. And so he assigned four squads of four soldiers to guard him. It would be 16 men guarding one unarmed man. He wasn't going to uh, let him escape again. 
It probably meant there were two men chained on either side of Peter and then two men standing guard outside the door, the squads taking turns and shifts to guard him. So Peter is bound, but prayers are loosed. The church is praying for him earnestly. Earnest means uh, fervent, a medical term describing stretching a muscle to its limit. That's how hard they were praying for Peter. And I think that's another provision God gives us, the prayers of people for us. That's a provision for us. And God would answer those prayers for Peter with peace, protection, and deliverance. Look at James 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay, let's look at verse 6 in chapter 12. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Peter didn't know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first guard and then the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened on its own accord. And they went out and went out along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, what's the first thing you notice about Peter in this story? He is at peace. He is peaceful even though death is waiting just around the corner for him in the morning. And it was such a peace that an angel even had to poke him in the side to wake him up. There may have been guards chained to Peter, but God was God guarding Peter's heart. It didn't matter what people on the outside could do. God had Peter's heart resting in his hand. While guards surrounded Peter, God guarded guarded Peter's heart with peace. I love that. Philippians 4 tells us this about it. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, it, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Initially, Peter was closely bound, closely guarded, barefoot, and only partially dressed. I don't think he could have been in any more of a vulnerable position. But Peter was protected by the sovereign plans of God. There are no plans of man that can undo the divine plans of God. God had future plans for Peter to be that rock for his church. Herod had no power in the world to change that. Peter wore God's protection. After dressing, Peter had to pass through more guards and an iron gate. 
leading into the city and I just envisioned this journey through the prison and at any moment the jig could be up, but God brought Peter safely past the guards, past the large iron gate, into freedom, and Peter all of a sudden, the angel has left, he's standing by himself in the street, he comes to himself, realizes this wasn't a dream, God was providing for me. God has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the Jews that despise me. And I think he knew immediately that that meant God had more plans for Peter to do for his church. Peter was rescued from captivity so he could rescue other captives. Think of all the hundreds and hundreds of people Peter was going to meet who were captured by their sins, living in their own prisons, who would hear the good news of Jesus Christ and come to know the freedom that comes with our salvation. That is why Peter was not ready to go to heaven yet. His work was not done. I think that's exactly where God found us when he delivered us. We were somehow captured by our sin in a dark place. He wants to deliver us as he did for our salvation. He wants to continue to deliver us. We're going to face dark things, hard trials, hard troubles. He wants to bring us to freedom. That's his desire. He has plans for us, and no work of man can override what God's plans are for us in our lives. In his perfect timing, God enters our prisons, frees us from the chains that seem to bind us. Psalm 138 tells us that. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. I think Charles Wesley wrote verse 4 of his hymn, And Can It Be, with Peter in mind, but also with us in mind. Listen to these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast Bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what God wants to do for us. He doesn't want us to face our days of darkness apart from the provision of his love his comfort, his plans, and his purposes being accomplished in our lives. Now, the rest of the story almost sounds like a good comedy. Peter standing on the street realizing, I'm freed by God's deliverance. And Peter would have thought immediately, the church will be praying for me. He knew where to go because Mary's house was where the Christian church was really growing in Jerusalem. He heads to the mother of John Mark. Some believe Mary's home was where the upper room of the Last Supper was. And some believe it's the place where Christ's followers were praying at Pentecost. It seems Mary's home became the headquarters for the Jerusalem church. And um, 
I was excited about that because we realized women were really important in the early church just like they are today. That's one of God's purposes for women today. Anyway, I like what this one man, how he sort of uh, summed up the next part of the story. The Christians were praying, oh, Lord, please deliver Peter. We need Peter. We don't want Peter to be executed. We need Peter. Three knocks on the door. They keep praying. Please save Peter. Please save Peter. Three more knocks. People began to glance around while they're praying, wondering, is somebody going to answer that door? Mary owned the house, so she probably looked up and saw Rhoda. Rhoda was a servant. Mary probably indicated to her, go to the door. Rhoda did. When she got there, Rhoda recognized Peter's voice. She was so overjoyed and shocked, she went back to the group without even opening the door. She interrupted the prayer meeting saying, Peter's at the door. They're thinking, did you ever hear anything so crazy in your whole life? How could Peter be at the door? Peter's in prison. That's why we're here. We're praying for Peter. So they said to her, not very kindly, you're out of your mind. I don't know who you saw out there, but you're out of your mind. And besides that, you're interrupting our prayer meeting. Sit down over there and let us pray. But Rhoda kept insisting it was so. Obviously, Rhoda had seen something that looked like Peter. So they said, well, it must have been an angel or maybe Peter's been executed. Then it's his ghost. They didn't really believe at that point that God had delivered Peter. But Peter kept on knocking. Peter didn't knock like a ghost. Because we all know Peter, and we know he was an impatient kind of a man. So I bet he's banging on the door at this point. They finally go to the door. Eventually, of course, they open it, and Peter came in and told his story. Here's my take on that. Let's listen to the knocking and celebrate God's answers to our prayers. When he delivers us, let's celebrate. Let's pay attention to God's provision. Sometimes he's knocking to remind us, you know, I answered that prayer for you. And we've just moved on to the next prayer without thanking God for the work that he has done. When the church finally heard Peter knocking, they celebrated. And then Peter needed to leave Jerusalem at least for a while. Let's finish up by reminding ourselves that God sets his followers on a path of abundance. But those who won't use God's compass find themselves on a path of misery. David knew this to be true on your outline under journey. He said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 20 of chapter 12. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, It's the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. 
and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I thought it was so interesting how Luke adds this verse at the end of this really horrible story of Herod, this last verse about the church growing. I think he did it intentionally. He was contrasting these two situations. He was showing us the prideful path, like Herod's, leads to destruction. The path of God leads to blessing. He was contrasting the destructive power of Herod with the saving power of God. It seems like the town of Tyre and Sidon were in Herod's dominion, and for some reason they made Herod Herod mad. But these cities depended on Galilee for grain, and so they needed to make Herod happy again. They had probably bribed Blastus to get them back on Herod's good side, and I thought that, doesn't that sound like the name of a guy you could bribe? Blastus. Okay, so let's bribe Blastus, and we'll get Herod to like us again. Um, There's an ancient respected Jewish historian named Josephus, a lot of you have heard of, and um, theologians think he has some very accurate history for us at that time in history, and he actually wrote a little bit about what happened on that day, and it really goes well with scripture. He says a negotiation festival was being held with Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon, and vows were being made for the um, wonderful emperor's safety. So what better way to get in good favor with the conceited man than to start yelling out at a festival, the voice of a god and not a man. And that's what they were doing, trying to flatter him. Herod made the grave mistake of accepting glory due to God alone. So here's what the historian Josephus wrote about this very moment. On the second day of the festival, Herod Agrippa put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a texture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out in a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have beforehand reverenced you only as a man, yet from here on out we will know you as superior to mortal nature. And upon these words the king did not rebuke them, nor reject their flattery. A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked around him and said, I, whom you call a God, and commanded presently to depart this life, while providence reproves the lying words you just now said to me. And I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away to my death. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, Herod departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age. Herod, in his pride, but also his hatred of God's people, 
had been standing in the way of the early church. He was the individual most effective in opposing the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by refusing to walk a righteous path of God, Herod found himself at a dead end. Literally, Herod dies. But the gospel lives. And it lives still. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. You know, the chapter opened looking pretty dark for these new Christians. Herod was on a rampage of persecution, violence. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Herod's triumphing. But the chapter closes with Herod dead, Peter free, the word of God triumphing, the church of Jesus Christ growing protected and provided for by God. In the hands of the church was the compass of God, and the compass was the provision of his word, his people, his spirit, and it put the church on a blessed path. With God's compass in hand, the church was led into great blessings and abundance. And God has provided all we need today to live an abundant life, that also leads not to our glory, but to his glory. That's what God wants for us. John 10 tells us, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then Jesus tells us the direction to do that. John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God is our provider for our salvation and abundant life with him. G24 tells us, now to him, our provider, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. He provides all of that for us.